Gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to a special Vegas Gang podcast for November 9th, 2011. Uh, the Vegas Gang is usually a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. Um, but today we're going to do another one of our Meet the Gangsters episodes, and my guest today is Jeff Simpson. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Hunter. Um, so for those of you out there that aren't familiar um, – Normally, the show is the four of us, uh, myself, Jeff, Dr. Dave Schwartz, and Chuck Monster from Vegas Tripping doing uh, sort of our version of casino punditry. Um, But over the last several months, I've uh, done interviews with uh, Chuck and Dave, and now we're going to be doing Jeff. Basically, it's to give you guys, the audience, a a sense of – a little bit of the history of, of these people you're listening to and, um, you know, maybe learn a few things and, uh, and step outside our regular format a little bit just to give some background. So the other two were a lot of fun and I'm sure that, um, this one will be today too. I don't, honestly, I don't know a lot about your background, Jeff. I know a little bit, I think here and there, but, um, I could probably fit everything I know on an index card. So, I am curious and looking forward to learning more right along with the audience. So if you're ready, let's dive in. That that sounds great. Okay. So you are Jeff Simpson. Where are you from originally, Jeff? Well, I'm from uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I spent my uh, um, school years, um, you know, from uh, birth to – when I went to college, um, living in the west side suburbs of Cleveland, most of those years in Olmstead Falls, um, a nice suburb of about 5,000 people. Um, it was uh, mostly suburban, um, maybe a little rural right on the edge of uh, the suburban belt around Cleveland. Um, has a, The city has a great school system, and, uh, you know, it was a really... Uh, you know, 70s kind of uh, ideal um, place to grow up, at least, uh, you know, that's how I feel about it. Um, Since I left, the town has become um, a lot bigger. It's probably doubled in size and is much more of a traditional suburb. Um, And, you know, some of the areas beyond that, beyond Olmstead Falls are now um, becoming suburban as well. But it was a great town. Um, I loved growing up there. I, uh, um, you know, I had a bunch of, uh, kids who, um, were my, you know, some of my best friends lived really close by. Um, we, you know, got to, uh, um, after school, we'd come home and, um, play, uh, you know, whatever kind of sport was in season, if the weather allowed, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, tackle football to to basketball. Um, sports were a big focus of my of my youth. I loved to play um, sports, and so did all my buddies. Uh, my uh, parents were friends with most of their parents, and so it was a it was a um, you know a real nice town to grow up grow up in. Um, and uh, you know, I I I I really think fondly. Um, about Olmstead Falls, although I haven't been back there since 
I think it was 1990, uh, my family um, moved away. Uh, my parents are divorced, and my dad uh, uh, moved to Florida and now lives in California. My mom um, lived in California, and she passed away in 2008. Um, my brother lives in uh, Orange County, California, so I visit my girlfriend's family. Uh, a lot of them are in Orange County, too, so I spend a lot of time um, over in Southern California, and I like it a lot there, too. So at some point, you left Ohio to go off to school. Um, what what was that like, and where were you headed? Well, I... Uh, I was a uh, a very good high school basketball player, and I was a pretty uh, pretty uh, strong um, student as well. And I had a lot of opportunities. I uh, was accepted to University of Virginia, and uh, um, that was the only college I applied to, and I planned to go there. Um, but um, sort of at the last minute, maybe uh, towards the end of my senior year, um, a couple. Um, small college basketball coaches started aggressively recruiting me and Wittenberg University um, in Ohio um, their coaches uh, made a persu- persuasive case I think my uh, my family would was uh, you know like the idea of me staying closer to home and maybe getting to come and watch some games so um, I, uh, I made the decision to go to Wittenberg I was, and, uh, and play college basketball. It's a good little academic, uh, school, liberal arts school. I, you know, just, uh, I think maybe three, 4,000 students. Um, few Las Vegans have gone there. Um, Glenn Schaefer, the former CFO. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, of Station, Station Casinos is a Wittenberg alum. I, I just talked to him a couple weeks ago and he's, uh, going to be on the board of directors of the college. So so I went to um, Wittenberg. It's in Springfield, Ohio, sort of halfway between Dayton and Columbus, um, just uh, southwest of the center of the state, and uh, um, played basketball my freshman year. Um, and, uh, you know, did pretty well academically my first year. Um, my second year, I uh, um, unofficially changed my major to... Uh, hardcore partying and did not play basketball that year um, my, and didn't do very well academically, and, uh, um, but did very, very well uh, socially, at least in my eyes, <laughs> but, um, and had a great deal of fun, made a lot of, uh, of good friends there. Um, but my, uh, at the time, my, my dad thought that uh, maybe I should take a break from college and focus on why I was... Uh, getting a uh, college education in the first place. So I moved to uh, Southern California where my mom's brother uh, managed an alarm company in Irvine and uh, worked there for two years and got my residency, uh, uh, my California residency. I was planning on going to the University of California um, at Irvine, which had, uh, which Back then, California schools had, like, no tuition, right. um, very, very low fees. It was just, you know, like an unbelievable deal. And, uh, you know, I was spending, you know, what back then seemed like an insane amount of money, uh, 10000 bucks a year to go to college in Ohio. And the idea of being able to go for, you know, with all, all in, maybe a 1000 or two a year um, was hard to resist. Um, but... 
Um, so I worked at my uncle's alarm company as a, as an alarm monitor for a little while. And then as a supervisor for, for a couple of years. Um, and that is the time period when I first went to Vegas. Um, before then, when I was at Wittenberg, um, I had gone to Atlantic city a couple of times because my, a good friend of mine from high school, his dad had been transferred to suburban Philadelphia mm-hmm. and, Atlantic City used to have a 19-year-old um, age minimum, and uh, luckily I was 19. So when my buddy, a buddy, and I went to visit our friend for a week, I think we went down to Atlantic City uh, on two different occasions for a day, and uh, you know we were like the typical foolish tourists you see in Las Vegas for the first time. The first time we went, I don't know if we had seen a James Bond movie or something, but we all wore suits. <laughs> thinking that was uh that was the way to go in a casino um and uh you know thinking back on the way i played i i only played blackjack it was the only thing that um i even had a vague idea of how to play and it was you know ridiculous how bad i was i think you know some some new yorker didn't take kindly to my uh brainy decision to split <laughs> pins oh man that made an impression that made an impression on me and I, I got a blackjack book, and so the second time I went, I did better and got way ahead before losing it all. I think I was up to six, seven hundred bucks, and you know just kept playing. But um, had a good, had a very good time, and was sort of hooked on the uh, the casino experience and vibe. So when I went to California, I, uh, I as soon as actually I, my first trip to Las Vegas was a couple weeks before I turned twenty one. And I stayed at the Four Queens, where no one carded me. Um, you know, I'm sort of tall, but I, you know, I, I still think I probably should have been carded. I'm sure I would, I would be now, but uh, I, I had no trouble gambling every single place I went on that trip. And uh, you know, then for the next couple of years, I probably returned to Las Vegas, you know, every month or two. Um, and uh, you know, it was just a great getaway. I probably, you know, I. You're a Southern Californian. You understand the allure, and right. for me, it was uh, it was fantastic. So, what year would that have been? Your first trip to Las Vegas. My first my first trip would have to Atlantic City would have been seventy nine, and then again in eighty, um, and then I moved to California in eighty, and went to Las Vegas. I think in June eighty one. I turned twenty one in July. And and then I was a pretty steady visitor um, for the next few years. So, okay, so that was not necessarily known as sort of a glory period for the city, right? I mean, it was sort of between... Oh, no. Uh, it's, it was the lull, it was a, the lull between Caesar's Palace and Bally's, well, which was then the MGM Grand, and the Mirage. Um, actually, that era... Um, 1981 through 83 um, was the time period when a lot of the smart people thought Laughlin was, well, certainly a lot of people thought Atlantic City was going to eventually surpass Las Vegas. But even closer to Las Vegas, people thought Laughlin, you know, it's on the river, it's closer to, um, you know, San Diego and Phoenix it's it's new all these casinos that they're building are new and they offer you know maybe more outdoor recreation opportunities um i think it was either time or newsweek made the 
um, made Laughlin their cover story at some point in the 80s. And, you know, most of those hotels were built during that decade. And uh, um, so, yeah, Las Vegas, you know, was when I came here, there wasn't a lot new. I think the uh, MGM Grand was um, the newest property. I mean, it was, you know, a few years after their their fire, but um, there was, you know, there wasn't a lot new, but I still loved it. I mean, I loved downtown, um, the you know, Fremont Street, the traffic on Fremont Street, the incredible lights. Um, I used to try when I, when I had enough money, I would stay at the Golden Nugget and play there and at the, uh, and at the Horseshoe. Um, or occasionally I would stay at the Stardust because they used to have, uh, um, this, the sort of low slung motel rooms, not in the new right. hotel tower, but they had motel rooms behind, actually the tower wasn't built until later, but they had these, you know, couple, two, three story motel rooms, nine ninety nine or a night. So, you know, that was pretty irresistible to me as well, because, um, like a lot of gamblers, you want to conserve your, <laughs> right. your gambling money and not waste it on, uh. You know, other other things like, you know, sleeping and eating and luxury. <laughs> so, okay, so you were living in California, and so then what, what comes next? What's the next sort of a life life chapter? Well, my uncle um, left. He was the uh, West Coast regional manager for Wells Fargo Alarm. Um, and so he was in charge of um, about, I don't know, maybe a dozen central stations for this, you know, big alarm company. And he decided to go off on his own and start his own alarm company. And uh, it was sort of the year between leaving Wells Fargo and getting everything set up for his new company that the people left behind at Wells Fargo thought, well, what do we need this legacy kid for who, you know, when his, uh, when his uncle sort of left us and is poaching our customers. So I think I was a victim of some, uh, retaliatory uh, downsizing <laughs> and uh and and um it was I, this was like the end of 1982 there was a little recession and so i was you know trying to figure out what to do and uh, my mom suggested she said well maybe if the if you can find something you'd really like to do um they will you know pay for your education maybe the army might be a good idea and, you know, that was, it sort of went against, I, I really was not someone who thought, oh, I would like the Army. I, as a matter of fact, I, always, I never really even thought about it as even a distinct possibility. Um, I came of age um, just a few years after the Vietnam era. I, you know, kids when I was a freshman in high school, I think, were right at the end of the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they ended the draft when I was, I think, a freshman in college, they re um, institute, they reinstituted um, regist- registering for the draft, but it was certainly nothing that I ever um, had thought of until I was in a position of uh, needing to find gainful employment or re- returning to school, and I didn't really want to borrow a whole bunch of money to go to go to college. So I uh, I checked out um, the army and found out that I could I I passed the test and was eligible to go to uh, um, Army Language School um, for a, a military intelligence specialty. And, and that was important to me because one of my really good buddies from Ohio, his family had moved to Pleasanton, California. Up, It's a 
nice suburb of, uh, of Oakland, uh, maybe between Oakland and San Jose. And uh, he and I regularly, he would come down to uh, um, Las Vegas. He worked for United Airlines and so could fly for free. He'd come down to L.A., or I'd go up and visit him, and we'd go to Reno or Tahoe. And uh, so I, I, if when I joined the Army, I, I, got, I got a job with the first year of training after basic training was in Monterey, um, which was really cool. So I had a buddy I could uh, um, go to the casinos with and maybe uh, break America's drug laws. Uh, <laughs> no, no additional comment on that, but um, I... Uh, you know, we had a really good time uh, when I was up there. I uh, went to language school for a year, then I went in Monterey and got to continue my uh, um, fascination with Nevada. And then um, after leaving Monterey, went to Army Intelligence School at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And uh, then from there, um, was stationed for um, a year in um, Kansas, a little over a year in Kansas at Fort Riley, and then spent three years um, in Germany, um, which what was then West Germany, um, in a really cool Bavarian town up in the uh, Rhone Mountains um, called Wildflecken. Um, I also, during that period, um, in 1984, a relatively young guy, I was uh, um, not quite 24, um, I got married, um, and uh, um, so, and then spent three years in Ger- in Germany, um, and uh, you know, did a lot of uh, you know my military, my time in the military. I I really look back fondly on that because I got to travel around Europe for um, most of three. You know, I guess I was there a little over three years, um, and for quite a chunk of that, the dollar was incredibly powerful. So. You know, you had like low-ranking army people, like privates, buying new BMWs and wow. um, you know staying in first-class hotels and and uh, you know I did a lot of traveling. I mainly traveled by train, and I didn't buy a BMW. I had a Volvo, a pretty nice Volvo, um, but I uh, I loved being in Germany. Um, I also, when I was in the military, I did a lot of sports. I played. Uh, um, post basketball, um, which meant you know we traveled around and played other posts. I played tennis. Um, was my uh, post champion a couple of years and got to play in the All Europe tournament. I wasn't very good, but um, there weren't a lot of good tennis players in the <laughs> army, so um, I benefited because I got to go on these cool trips and avoid all the the humdrum regular duty. Um, and actually. A lot of the sports I played, I played volleyball, I played flag football. All of those were not just fun recreational things. Similar, you know, maybe a little, you know, a little better quality than you had in high school gym class. But it was a way to, you know, you typically got out of some kind of uh, pain in the rear end duty by playing those games. So I uh, took full advantage of that, and and I was also my units. Um, what they call A and R NCO. So I would set up uh, trips for our our company to go to the uh, Alps for ski trips and to Spain to go to you know visit Barcelona and um, and stuff like that. But it was just a, it was a really fun time um, for me um, getting to see so much of Europe. I love history and uh, um, 
have always done a lot of uh, reading in history, and uh, um, that was, or you know, obviously Europe is so much older and has so much uh, more um, involved history than the United States. Um, it was a good experience for me. Okay, so you're in Germany, and you've now been in the army for four years, if I'm counting correctly. Um, is that is that the end of your army career, or do you continue in the army? I stayed in the army until 19, January '89. Okay, so I went in in February '83. So my, my enlistment would have ended in February '80 or '89, but um, I got out a few weeks early. They you know, it's sort of like a voluntary uh, early um, departure, um, which was cool. And I had already, uh, um, you know, with, you know, honorable discharge under honorable circumstances, had a great time. I left as a sergeant. I was promotable to staff sergeant, uh, but didn't wasn't willing to extend. I think I had to be in for another six months or a year, and I wasn't willing to do that because I had already um, decided that I wanted to, um, you know, finish my uh, undergraduate degree and think about something to do after that, probably some kind of graduate school. So I uh, had applied to a small, my my uh, not then wife, now ex-wife, um, was a Florida resident, and she was pretty insistent on going back to Florida, despite my desire to go to California. Um, and uh, I acceded to her wishes, and we went back to Florida, and I uh, um, was accepted to and got a full scholarship to New College. Um, it's a awesome, small liberal arts college, um, state. Um, actually, not liberal arts. There's, they also have a um, pretty strong science program, but it's in Sarasota, Florida. And uh, so went back there in January 1989, and... Uh, um, I was a history major and spent, uh, I guess it was about, uh, it wasn't two two years even because I had to make up for some of my uh, um, uh, poor um, <laughs> study habits when I was in college the first time at Wittenberg. Um, but I did very well there um, and uh, um, loved living in Sarasota. I, I worked simultaneously. I had a full-time job working in the evening or or late at night, which and I worked. Um, I used my past experience as an alarm monitor to, uh, you know, monitor alarms and supervise a, a central station. And it was a, it's a great job because you can read while you're working. And so I did all my, you know, school reading and paper writing um, when I was when I was there. So I, you know, I this time around, um, I I'm sure I was better prepared than almost all the other students because I had a guaranteed uh, 40 hour week most of the time spent you know reading and writing right you know and getting paid for it which was pretty cool um, new college was was an awesome school it's very uh, it's a non-traditional college um, um, West Coasters might be familiar with Reed College in the Northwest it's a it's a Steve. school that doesn't have grades. Right. Um, you get like really long written evaluations from your professors, and um, you know it was it was right up my alley. I loved it. Uh, majored in history, but took some uh, economics and political science, and you know religion and philosophy and other stuff, and uh, you know really thrived there. Um, and loved Sarasota as well. Made a couple lifelong friends there, um, and. 
it was a you know a fantastic place to be. I learned to really appreciate uh, the Sunshine State and Sarasota, the Gulf Coast. Um, you know, it's a state where there's a whole lot of old people. Uh, but, um, you know, so I felt, I always felt very young in Sarasota. Um, and, but it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really a fantastic place. I got to take up golf in earnest, um, all summer long when it's too hot for most, uh, rational humans to play. I would play almost every day, um, for a, for a pittance and, uh, because they can't get, you know, all the, all the snowbirds are back north and, you know, the rational people aren't aren't willing to subject themselves to uh, 95 degree heat and 100% humidity. Right. So um, it, it was, uh, it was great. I love Florida. Um, and so at my, when I, when I left new college, I had, I had taken the LSAT and the GRE and did, did well on both those exams and was trying to decide between uh, um, whether to go to law school or um, pursue a, PhD in history and, and then teach. Um, and I've, I've done, you know, some teaching here and there, um, during my, you know, before then. And also while I was in Sarasota for five years, I, uh, I coached, um, high school basketball. I was an assistant high school basketball coach for Sarasota high school. Um, and, uh, one little interesting side note that ties in with my um, current career covering the gambling industry is that when I was in high school in Ohio, um, I went to Boys State. It's an American Legion sponsored program um, that prepares people for, you know, like civic responsibility, like have a model state government and model town governments. And the, one of the guys who attended in my class was a, uh, um, a guy named um, Arch Schleister. He's a famous Ohio State, later became an Ohio State quarterback and, you know, one of the most prominent problem gamblers who's been <laughs> in jail a bunch of time and time oh, no. bounced out of the NFL for making bet, you know, bets on games and, you know, it's like ripping off people to pay for his bad habits. Oh, no. Um, and then when I was in Sarasota coaching high school basketball, um, our team, um, two of our two of the teams that Sarasota played against um, had players who were prominent, um, had prominent um, college gambling problems. Adrian McPherson from Bradenton Southeast, who went on to Florida State, he was a really highly recruited quarterback. He got busted for making bets on sports events, as did another opponent from Cape Coral Mariner High School, Teddy DuPay from the University of Florida. So it's it's sort of amazing that you know if you if you listed like the five college athletes who are most famous for having sports gambling problems you know since the 70s my life has intersected with three of them which is <laughs> almost you know really amazing considering that I ended up covering the uh that business sort yeah. of uh you know indirectly not necessarily sports betting but right but uh um, back to uh, um, coaching high school basketball in Sarasota. I loved doing that. Um, but when it came time to decide what to do for my career, um, I made a, my decision. I thought, you know, it was sort of the era, the t a popular TV show, L.A. Law, was like fueling this boost in law school admissions. And I was sort of worried that, 
You know, there was going to be too many lawyers chasing too few jobs. And, and to be frank, being a professor, the, the lifestyle sort of appealed to me. I thought, you know, it, it seems like a pretty cool job. You get a lot of, a lot of time off ability to write and read and research and, you know, and it didn't seem like the most strenuous of occupations and, um, I have a lazy streak. So, um, <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, you know, it sounded like a fun thing. So I applied to, um, I think I applied to like four or five schools. I know I applied to Columbia, Minnesota, Wisconsin. These are, you know, schools of good history programs. Um, University of Florida, and I can't remember the last one, maybe Rice. But I got accepted um, everywhere, but only Florida offered me a fellowship. And, um, you know, my professor was, like, really pushing me to go to Columbia. He had gone there. And he's like, oh, you'll get a fellowship the second year. Just, you know, borrow the money the first year. And, you know, I didn't really want to do that. So I went to Florida um, where I had a full fellowship and, you know, it covered my housing and books and, you know, stipend and living expenses. So it was a pretty good, pretty good monetary deal. But, um, when I got there, I realized, um, that, you know, my professors were not exactly pitching the, how, how good of a career it was going to be for me. Um, I was interested in studying modern American political history and, in history nowadays, that's really not, um, you know, I mean, people get jobs doing that, but, you know, the more, the easiest way to get a job in history is probably to, you know, be, you know, study, uh, um, you know, and maybe some of the people who history have sort of ignored. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just wasn't interested in that. And I, you know, um, and I, I grew a little disenchanted with my career prospects in that field, I thought, you know, I, there was, there's a trend in um, the academy of not hiring tenure track professors anymore and instead um, leaving your tenure track professors in place. But as they retire or die off or leave, um, replacing them with adjunct professors who just get paid on a per class basis. You know, almost slave wages, I mean, not really, but very, very limited amount of money to teach. And, you know, I mean, I, I just had this idea that either I'd be working for, you know, 3000 bucks a class and trying to, you know, live on, you know, fifteen or $18,000 a year, or I'd be getting a job, you know, maybe on the tenure track, you know, and nothing against this school if there is such a school at Central Arkansas State or, <laughs> you know, you know West, Western Montana A&T or something. So I just, you know, I didn't feel like a University of Florida history degree was going to put me in, on a path to uh, getting the kind of job that I, to the certainty that I get the kind of job I wanted. And I also miss Sarasota, so I went back back to Sarasota, and uh, you know went back to um, the you know a lot of the alarm monitoring job, and um, got a job coaching, and uh, you know looked for something else to do. Um, and after after maybe a year of that, and you know sort of uh, playing a lot of golf, I uh, I got a uh, job 
my first journalism job um, at the Gulf Coast Business Review. Um, and that was, you know, really a, sort of a transforming experience for me. Um, I always thought, you know, that was something I could do, but my journalism background had consisted of uh, my second year at Wittenberg. I covered the basketball team for the student newspaper and, and liked it. Um, it was nothing I would have considered as a career back then, but I thought it was a fun thing to do. And um, But when I went back to Florida, you know, I, I was I was reporting and researching, um, covering the uh, the business community in Florida. It's mainly, uh, you know, development and tourism. Um, and uh, so I, uh, I did that. And so for a couple of years, let me inter- really interject here for a second. Journalism. Let me interject oh, here. Sure. For a second. Um, sure. So it's interesting that you you know you're not being sort of classically trained as a journalist, uh, but you know of course that does end up being um, a major part of your career as we as we'll get into going forward. Of course, now in these days with the internet, this has become an, a topic of some debate as there are obviously many classically trained journalists that are writing for the web, but there are also many people um, doing all kinds of writing for the web that are not trained as journalists that, um, you know, there, there's a debate is what they do. Journalism is, does, does that classical training matter? Um, so I think, I think in some ways it's kind of interesting to contrast that. What do you, where do, what do you think about that issue? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, up until, you know, half a century ago, journalism training was like the exception. Um, a very small um, group of people were trained in journalism um, and far more significant journalists, you know, through most of the, you know, all of the 19th century, most of the 20th century were not classically trained as journalists. Um, it's not a career that mandates classical training. It, it I think, a classic liberal arts education is very beneficial. Um, certainly, uh, you know, I mean, being able to being able to read well, being able to write, um, understanding the world you live in. I mean, I've been a, you know, a very uh, I've read my whole life. Um, I love to read, and you know, whether it's newspapers, magazines, uh, um, books, you know, all you know, both nonfiction and fiction is a as a young man, and obviously now uh, with the internet, I've added that incredible tool. But I think I don't think that um, you know journal. I, I think you know for someone who knows they want to go into it, um, is it probably helpful in terms of getting a job? It is. There are plenty of um, you know there are plenty of entry level journalism jobs that you know for whatever reason they've decided that's the pool we're going to hire from. Um, And, you know, there's way more people who get trained in that field than can ever get jobs working in journalism, especially with the downsizing of much of, you know, traditional media. Um, But, you know, there's there's really no reason why um, with a little bit of sort of, you know, on-the-job training that, you know, a political scientist or an economist or an English major or... Or, uh, or a history major, you know, couldn't be a great journalist. I, I mean, you know, for, let's just take um, the last 
um, Vegas gang interview you did Dr. with Dr. Dave. I mean, he is a classically trained historian, um, but he has no problem, you know, as a journalist writing in, in a, for a variety of publications. He does a great job, better often than classically trained journalists. And so I, I was really not worried. I mean, I understood the media and the medium of, uh, you know, newspaper, newspaper publication, publications before I got into it. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like I felt like I was at a decided disadvantage. There were a few things I needed to pick up pretty quickly. And, and I have been to some career education things, business reporter seminars and, and stuff like that. And certainly I've benefited from a number of really fine reporters and edited editors I've worked for and with that have sort of provided me with their counsel and guidance and, you know, on the job training. Um, and so, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I didn't miss much not going to school. Would it have made my transition into the career easier? You know, maybe, but I have a feeling that my life experience, you know, brings a lot more to the table than maybe, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, classroom setting or writing for student publications. Yeah, fair enough. <clears throat> I just think it's an interesting issue. Uh, it's clearly the internet has changed, has changed sort of the, uh, anybody can have an audience now. Um, no matter who you are or what you know or where you went to school. Um, well, and, 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 and that's a good, I, I, you know, and I've, you know, we've talked about this on, you know, the Vegas Gang podcast many times. I mean, there's no reason why. I mean, I think that's great because in reality, your, your audience is going to, you know, vote with their ears or vote with their clicks or, you know, um, and they're going to listen to you if you're compelling, if you're interesting, if you're worthwhile, if you have something that informs them or amuses them or shocks them. Um, and if you don't, um, they're not going to read. I mean, that's, that's one of the problems with print journalism is there's never really been <clears throat> um, a useful metric for deciding just what part of papers that people like or don't like. So, you know, you end up with editors who, you know, based on their knowledge and what they think, you know, they may think that, you know, somebody, you know, who, you know, whether they like their writing or they like what they write about, they may think that's what readers like. But it's hard to translate, you know, a, a publication that has, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100, or many hundreds of reporters and figure out how any one of those affects circulation numbers, right? Newsstand sales, subscribers. So the you know the editors um, have a tremendous amount of power in saying you know you're good or you're not good. Um, at least before the internet, it was really difficult for reporters to sort of prove that people cared about what they wrote. Um, you know, nowadays at least you have how many times are people you know clicking on your story, reading to the second page. If you have a jump, an online jump, how many times are people emailing it to someone, linking to it through social media, all that kind of stuff. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Um, and certainly I've railed against publications that seem to care, to care more about clicks than quality. But at least clicks are a metric um, and not totally subjective. Right. 
Uh, well, we're definitely going to talk more about newspapers and social media later, but I want to move our, our history forward a little bit. Um, so you're in Florida. You've got your first newspaper gig. What happens next? Well, I I worked for this paper, and I you know it was like this little entrepreneur entrepreneurial company uh, um, that runs. They own the Longboat Observer, the Gulf Gulf Coast Business Review, um, a few more suburban newspapers um, around Sarasota, Bradenton, and Southwest Florida. Um, and it was a it was a really good company to work for. I sort of got my feet wet, learned about the business. And uh, about the same time, my uh, ex-wife, um, she wanted to move to Flor- from Florida, and she knew that um, a good place to persuade me to move along with her was to uh, um, suggest Las Vegas, where uh, she lined up a job with um, American Nevada, um, and then later with Purchase Pro. Um, uh, I remember Purchase Pro. Yeah, Purchase Pro, um, when she got, she had been in American Nevada for like a year and then got a, uh, job at Purchase Pro and had a bunch of stock options and, you know, um, visions of, uh, we're going to be rich dancing through her head. Um, she had a really good job there and was, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, not rich in, um, you know, strip chief executive terms, but in terms of, in, you know, our terms, it was pretty, uh, you know, a pretty big possibility, but that company sort of imploded along with the, uh, high tech bubble, um, at the, uh, right at the, uh, um, start of the two thousands. And then, you know, and then the, you know, the executive team for that company was, um, charged with, you know, sort of working together with AOL, um, which at the time was another real high flyer, and uh, you know, in, in, in sort of like cooking up deals that would sort of inflate um, the business that um, Purchase Pro was doing and um, looked like it was going to do. Right. Um, and so you know, it was a Las Vegas high tech, a Las Vegas high tech company that pretty quickly crashed to earth. But anyway, so she persuaded me that Las Vegas would be a great place to go, and as much as I liked. The idea of Las Vegas was very tough for me. I liked coaching basketball. I liked my buddies in Florida. I liked playing golf all the time. Um, it was a very, it was a tough decision, but, um, you know, I came along for the ride and, uh, um, got here and, um, my first job in journalism in Las Vegas, I mean, I applied everywhere and, uh, eventually through, um, her being employed at American Nevada, um, um, a greenspun company. I was uh, hired by um, their entertainment weekly, Showbiz Magazine. Right. Um, to and they hired me to write about uh, um, boxing and gambling and and sports. Um, and uh, but my editor had different ideas and thought she would make me into a paginator um, and <laughs> a, a list maker. Um, and I really had no experience, you know, using Quark and, um, it was a very, uh, it was, it was really a square peg in a round hole. And my, uh, editor, um, quickly decided that I didn't fit the bill and let me, let me go after six weeks. It was, um, one of my, uh, most unsatisfactory, uh, job exits, but in, in reality, it was a godsend because, um, 
I was uh, very shortly thereafter um, called by LasVegas.com, which was the RJ's Verse, right. subsidiary. Right. And they were setting up a um, gaming um, newsletter, I mean, a gaming newswire um, that would be called Las Vegas, um, the Las Vegas Gaming Wire. And they wanted to hire a couple reporters to sort of, you know, to both aggregate other gaming stories and then write um, sort of brief Las Vegas-based gaming stories. And uh, um, I, Len Butcher, um, sort of a prominent Las Vegas journalist who had been a, an editor of the, or a managing editor at The Sun and had run Gaming Today um, for uh, Chuck DeRocco, the late uh, publisher of that um, uh, paper. Um, he was running the Gaming Wire, and uh, he... Luckily for me, in my clips, I had included a cover story I did for in Florida on uh, the one dog track owner in the state who didn't want slot machines, and I was a pretty—I thought you know it was a pretty good story. I understood that business, and um, I think that persuaded him that I could write gaming copy, um, and so I was hired um, at you know twice the salary I had ever you know at my peak earning in Florida. So. It was, uh, you know, a very good day for me when they <laughs> hired me. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the Gaming Wire, um, after a couple weeks, um, Len Butcher was, uh, um, he had a non-compete um, deal with Gaming Today, and he was unable to fulfill his job with the RJ. The RJ sort of scaled back its plan for the Gaming Wire part. I mean, we sort of you know, did it or pretended to do it for a couple of years. But um, in reality, I just became a Las Vegas Review Journal business reporter. Um, they used the Las Vegas um, Gaming Wire byline for, you know, maybe two of the four years I spent there. But, uh, you know, I was pretty quickly immersed into the casino business here in, uh, here in town. So you're at the Review Journal and... I mean, Las Vegas has a lot of smaller media outlets, but, you know, it's really in terms of newspapers, it's the Review Journal and the Sun are by far uh, the most well-known. And uh, the of the two, the Review Journal, especially now, but I think for quite some time, is the stronger of the two. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, going – and I, I want to sort of jump back and forth here because the Review Journal has had a tough – Time, I think, in the past few years, um, and I'm not even talking about circulation numbers. I don't really stay on top of that sort of thing. But in terms of its mind share, it the way that it's embraced digital, uh, the way that it's it you know they've recently re- recently replaced uh, key key personnel in in the newsroom. What's your take on the Review Journal of today and how that paper has uh, has transformed over the years? Well, you know, the paper has always been incredibly profitable um, when I got there. I mean, it was always very short-staffed. They expected the people to do a lot of work. Um, it was. It's always been um, a monopoly on the business side, even though The Sun um, was a full newspaper for a while, um, creating a full, you know, a full-service, multi-section paper. Right. Um, but it was... It was um, printed 
and sold or delivered um, by the RJ as part of a joint operating agreement. Right. So, uh, and ads were sold by the RJ. So there was no business competition. Any money that was made by either paper went to the RJ and was shared according to a formula with the Greenspun family that owned the Sun. So business-wise, um, as long as the economy was going good and the city was growing, they did fine. Um, you know, they didn't employ a whole lot of people on the editorial side. They kept costs low. They didn't have, you know, an ornate Taj Mahal by any means. Um, you know, I always compare their building and just off of downtown Las Vegas, it looks sort of like a National Guard armory. <laughs> it and, does. Uh, you know, and 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 maybe in that section of town, um, that's not a, that's not such a bad <laughs> thing. <clears throat> but um, the uh, you know the uh, in terms of its um, adapt adapting to modern technology, I mean, when I came to town, you know, it was like there was almost like a an array of Greenspun forces and. Um, Stevens Media Group, then it was called Don Ray Media, but they converted to the name Stevens Media because of the Stevens family from Arkansas that owns the paper. They each, each family had their, um, their newspaper, um, or each, each company had their, their newspaper, the RJ and the Sun. Um, the, um, the RJ had, um, a website, LasVegas.com, that was intended to be a competitor to Vegas, to Vegas.com. Um, you know the two best city URLs for the for Las Vegas. Right. Um, and um, the idea was that LasVegas.com was going to compete against Vegas.com, um, and that the gaming wire would be a part of LasVegas.com. Um, but you know, for some reason. Um, and a guy who was appeared on one of Dave Schwartz's podcasts, Jack Harpster, who wrote a book about Cy Red, he was my first boss. He was my boss's boss, Len Butcher's boss at um, LasVegas.com. He's a great guy, um, but he retired shortly thereafter, and somehow the RJ management seemed to lose interest in that part of what was going on. I mean, they really sort of doubled down on sort of older um, models. They bought right. more print publications. Um, they bought a, they bought a Spanish, I think it's a Spanish weekly. They bought a book pub, they set up a book publishing arm. They bought City Life and Las Vegas Senior Press and the Las Vegas Business Press from WIC Communications. Um, and that was, you know, is that they seemed to be more interested in, in that part of the business. They really fumbled uh, they, the LasVegas.com thing. I mean, at least as far as my, from my position as an outside observer. Well, they, it obviously had, I always thought it was the better name, you know, LasVegas.com compared to Vegas.com, but you know, you never hear LasVegas.com um, anymore because it was part of the deal in 2005 when the Greenspuns agreed in a revision to the JOA to um, no longer publish a full paper and um, to be just an insert in the RJ. That saved the RJ tons of money because they didn't have to print an entire number of paper, uh, t an entire separate paper and 
deliver it and sell it and sell ads for it. Um, so it enabled, you know, they could cut their staffing in the, on the production side, cut their expenses on newsprint, um, and uh, convert all of the old Sun subscribers, not that there were many, I think it was 25K or so, convert them into RJ subscribers, which would boost RJ subscription numbers, um, which were never very good and certainly grew at, far, at a far slower rate than the pop, than population did. So, you know, they, but they didn't capitalize on LasVegas.com. Intuitively, it should have been a great site. The, the Green Sponge had a much um, smarter, took a much smarter tack, a more aggressive tack with Vegas.com and made that into a pretty good, a pretty good business. I think it did pretty well, although I'm not sure how they've done, you know, during the recession after I left the company. But, you know, I always thought they, uh, they really knew what they were doing over there. Yeah, so this is actually a place where I maybe can comment a little bit because um, Vegas.com has, I think, done quite well. Um, you know, they made a big push to do a compete a complete uh, Spanish translation of the entire website and really aggressively marketed to that. And they've actually now even moved further, and I think they're doing um, more more work in Mexico. But just the site in general is kind of like the you know, 800-pound gorilla of the Vegas um, internet presence. Now, what they do is different in a lot of ways than what, like, a, a Vegas tripping would do, right? So their their primary mission is to sell you a hotel room or a show ticket. Um, they're, they aim to be kind of an outlet for uh, people that are, that are searching the internet and want to find out you know, some basic information about the hotels and, and book their stay. And, and I think they do quite well with that. I think maybe a common criticism from those of us that compete, and I, you know, sort of put that in quotes because I think there are sort of some shades of gray as far as what different people are doing, but there's definitely also some overlap. I mean, the sense that I get is that they're, they're very much in the business of promoting Las Vegas. And so, no doubt about it. I mean, there, there's not even a pretense that they're providing, you know, impartial guidance. Right. Um, you know, I mean, they they don't they don't pretend to do that. I don't think, although they, you know, they may not. It may not be as clear to someone who just Google's them or clicks on, you know, one of their ads or sees their banners at an Angels or Dodgers game, right? Or billboards on I-15. Um, you know, but they they definitely are promotional. I mean, you know, I worked in a sister company when I was at the Sun and in business, and you know, they're constantly having all the you know different celebrities from you know the hotel, the performers at at the different um, you know strip venues coming into their Vegas.com offices and doing you know little you know promotion things for their right. shows. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's a market. Ba- I mean, it's a shopping basket store right. for you know from soup to nuts for Las Vegas. Right. I don't think they really pretend, but you know, but to balance that, just like you know, you need you know, I mean, they, you know, they've sort of set themselves up, set themselves up as a good place to buy something, but people, at least good consumers, um, and and strong. People with strong interests that go that go beyond the superficial promotional, you know, type stuff. 
you know, they need a venue where they can find out, you know, what really is, is going on, what, what, um, you know, what other consumers think, what, um, opinion leaders and experts think. And so there's, there's a place for everyone. Right. Um, I, you know, yeah, I, no doubt. I, I think that, I, you know, I, I really, do, I don't have a problem with what they do. I think that, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a business. It's not an, an you know, it's not a, a consumer help agency. Yeah, I mean, actually, I I don't know if I've ever really talked about this, but uh, a few years ago, I uh, they invited me to come in to pitch them on a mobile app for Vegas.com, and um, so you know, I ended up talking with them a bunch and went in and did a pitch, and they ended up not doing anything. I know that they did pitches for a bunch of companies, and they didn't really. I think. Yeah, for whatever reason, they decided they weren't ready to do their mobile app. But it gave me some more insight into um, how you know how they work and and what they're all about. And yeah, I think that's that's correct. I I, I think the the only maybe the only quibble I do have is that they you know that they put up content that is sort of couched in the term review. But if you can find a negative statement about any place they quote unquote review on that website, I will send you five dollars. Because it's very yeah, much a cheerleading organization. I mean, you're right. It's uh, you know. I mean, it's not like you know where if you read you know like the some sections of the New York Times or the Washington Post, they'll have promotional travel sections. Right. But they're clearly marked on the borders of the page. You know, promotional and you know, like the RJ, RJ does that with his weekend real estate section. Newspapers are typically pretty good at it. But in in that um, genre, I don't think they're uh, I don't think they're as good at it, and, and it's really closely linked to you know their former print background um, with showbiz. Now it's called LVM, but and they do um, sort of higher end custom publications right. for uh, um, for Las Vegas Sands, for Win, for MGM. Oh, I don't know that they do MGM, but you know. Those those publications are pure right. uh, advertorial. They they they're you know they they don't proclaim that it's advertorial. It's just you know I mean a, a smart consumer needs to be able to figure it out, and they probably uh, benefit from the fact that you know not every consumer is all that smart. Yeah, I mean, I think if you pick up Win Magazine in the hotel room you're staying in, it's probably pretty obvious there's not going to be anything negative about the win organization in the magazine. I think maybe it's a little bit less clear when we're talking about an organization like Vegas.com, but yeah, you know, whatever. That's not, that's, that's not really a huge, a huge issue. And, and they, they do quite well, but as you said, there's a lot of room for other people to sort of fill in, uh, fill in the gaps um, for people that want to know more, for people that want to kind of go beyond that sort of base level of understanding. But so, okay, so we kind of got off on a tangent there. So you're at the RJ, and how long does that last? Well, um, I start in January of 2000, and um, um, I, be, I, I after maybe a year, um, I'm working with, um, the other reporters they hired for Las Vegas um, dot com gaming wire either leave the company or go to another part of the company. Like one um, um, woman went to work for the View, so I was the only one left from that venture. 
along with Dave Burns, who had left the RJ for Bloomberg and then came back to the RJ. Um, and uh, he was my editor and co-worker. We together did the gaming news um, for a couple years. Then he um, left to do something else in the pa- at the paper, and I was the only reporter and picked up. I had shared his column called Gaming Chips for like a year. Then I did it by myself for two years. Then the last year, year and a half, um, they hired um, uh, Rod Smith. Sure, who, uh, I remember him. Who, who um, he had been the publisher of for WIC Communications here in Las Vegas, which meant the senior press, the business press, um, and city life. And um, this is before the RJ bought those publications, but um, I think Rod had had a falling out with WIC and was on the market, and he had a relationship of some kind um, with Sherm Frederick, the uh, who ran uh, Stevens Media, and uh, Sherm hired him to, uh, um, in effect, take Burns's place on the uh, um, as editor of Gaming Wire, which was his title. So he was nominally my boss. I mean, he wasn't really my boss. My boss was the business editor of the RJ, Michael Heisiger. But uh, um, Rod, um, Rod then took over the uh, the gaming column, and I was sort of unhappy about that. Um, you know, we, you know, I, I feel you know he was a very smart guy, and you know he's he's deceased, and I, you know, I, I felt like he was, um, you know, I felt like I knew the business a little better than he did. Uh, but, um, you know, he had a lot more experience in journalism and sort of high-powered experience relative to mine <laughs> um, and a connection with our with the RJ's publisher. Um, so he, you know, and, and I mean, it, it's sort of an amusing little anecdote. I mean, we sort of had a, we divided up our uh, gaming beats. And, uh, you know, I think it, it sort of shows, in my mind, it showed um, sort of, his understanding of the gaming business, he picked, um, you know, what companies he wanted to cover, and he picked the two biggest companies, um, which I felt were like the least interesting. Um, he he took uh, um, Park Place Entertainment, and um, which um, eventually was uh, acquired by Harris. But he took Park Place, and he and um, left left me with um, with Win Resorts and Mandalay Resort Group and Station Casinos and Coast Casinos and the Palms. It was like I felt like I got all the inter- most of the interesting companies, and he took sort of the big corporate companies where none of the people who run them are going to say anything interesting. How can you, if you're um, so, choosing which companies you want to cover in Las Vegas, how can you not pick the one that is run by Steve Wynn? Well, I mean, the guy is like, a, that place, I, they leak I, I from the top. I had sort of a rapport with Wynn at that time. And, you know, Wynn, Wynn is sort of funny in terms of, he doesn't really, you know, welcome, um, you know, uh, interview requests from every reporter who calls. But if you can and, build uh, a relationship with him, he like he leaks from the top like almost no other. Well, he, you know, my relationship was Win, and that was 
um, that was a point of contention between Rod Smith and me um, because, you know, he was a smart journalist and a smart person, and he recognized how quotable Wynn was. And Wynn was building at the time when Rod came to the uh, RJ, he was the only one building a hotel in town. Um, so obviously that's like, you know, the most newsworthy thing. He also was getting going in Macau. So he was, you know, he was very interesting, but I had this longstanding uh, um, sort of reporter um, relationship with him. And what had happened was um, when Wynn decided to close the Desert Inn, um, I got a, uh, um, I, I got a, I got a, a source to give me Wynn's cell number. Um, and, um, I, 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 I broke that story about him closing the DI because I talked to the NAACP president in Las Vegas who said that, you know, the NAACP was trying to pressure Wynn to, you know, increase black, um, employment and contracting at the DI and Wynn pretty much is like, you pretty much told him, hold your breath. I'm closing this place. Right. And so, you know, the, the NAACP guy was sort of annoyed. And when I talked to him, he told me that and Wynn wasn't ready to pu go public with that. But, um, I broke the story, but, uh, but when I called Wynn for confirmation, you know, his secretary, you know, just, you know, blew me off. Like he blows off most, I mean, they're very courteous and polite, but, right. you know, that doesn't mean you're going to get a phone call back. So I called him on his cell phone, and he was like, you know, I mean, he, I think he was pretty probably a, li a little profane and <laughs> you know, a little annoyed that I had his cell phone number. And, he, you know, he said, Jeff, are you going to make me get a new number, um, you know, because you're calling me? And I, and, you know, and I said, I'll never call you again on this number unless it's a dire journalistic emergency but will you talk to me about this and and he said i don't know why but he sort of liked that and we had a good talk and he felt that i treated him fairly in that story and uh from then on he always took my calls and when he went when he took um win resorts public in his ipo i wrote a story every day and uh you know um had very good sources that, you know, sort of kept me informed ahead of every other competitor, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, um, and, you know, the, the, the Wall Street analysts, the Las Vegas Sun. Um, I, you know, I sort of knew what they were doing every step of the way. And uh, I think they liked my coverage in that way. And so, I did, you know, he developed a trust in me that I'm not going to, um, you know, um, twist his words and that I'll treat him fairly. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, we dealt with some complicated issues where um, he was critical of people and maybe um, got him in a little bit of trouble, whether it was in Macau or later in Singapore. But he was always, you know, he realized I had, you know, written what he said. Um, and so we developed a very good working relationship. And, you know, for a, a reporter, it was a goldmine because the guy, first of all, he understands the business better than, um, better than anybody that I know in Las Vegas. Um, he, he really understands it. And for me as a reporter, I love interviewing top people or people who know a lot because I get educated. And the more I know, the more my readers can know because I know how to, you know, explain it perfectly or as best I can. And when, when 
enjoys the teaching role. He enjoys, you know, having somebody who sort of knows what's going on and will learn right. from him as he explains what's going on. So it, he, it, he liked to teach me and that enabled me to inform our readers. And so um, it's been a very, very productive relationship for me over the years. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I respect him in many ways. I mean, I've criticized recently his turn towards politics and other things, but you know, um, you just, it's, it's impossible to look at what he's done um, in Las Vegas and, and elsewhere and say that there's any other casino operator who's been more important to the business. I mean, you know, in my mind, um, he is the singular most significant um, operator owner. And when, you, you know, obviously, you know, this is something that we debate regularly on the Vegas gang. We talk about it on your site, on Chuck's site and um, in print. The thing about when um, that separates him when I, when I say that, He's the most singularly important uh, um, casino um, executive or owner. Um, unlike, you know, almost every other, you know, and, and when we talk about Win, we tend to focus especially on your blog, on his design um, brilliance um, or his instincts, working with great, you know, a great team of people, you know, his architect and his designer. But, the thing that separates, you know, there's, you know, it's hard to um, dispute, you know, that um, Gary Loveman is a brilliant marketer or, you know, Terry Lanny was an incredible executive of a manager of other executives. Right. But see, but the thing about Wynn is he's, he's a master of many different things. He does incredible real estate deals like deals that, you know, any, for almost any, any person with resources, almost any one of his deals are like, you know, capstone of a, of a real estate career. He does those, you know, once a decade, right. um, just incredible deals, whether it's buying his slice of land in front of Caesar's palace, um, with the help of Perry Thomas, um, his purchase of the dunes, his purchase of the desert Inn. um, you know, you know, figuring out a way to get a good site in Macau and apparently a good site on site on Kotai, if that's ever formally approved. Um, so, you know, he has, he's this real estate wizard who knows when to buy and, and at the right price, even in Atlantic City. Um, he did that. Um, he's a great, as we said, designer and architect. He's a fantastic operator. Um, you know, he's had some little laws where, you know, the Wall Street quarter-by-quarter quarter people, you know, were nipping at his heels, and that cost him ownership of uh, Mirage Resorts. Um, but, um, you know, some people, you know, like to point to that and say, oh, you know, he was he's not always that great. But I think it's just, it's not always, Wall Street is not always that great. You know, Wynn was going to be, was going to do, and his companies were going to do just fine with Mirage Resorts. There was just a, an economic lull and a slowness to appreciate what Bellagio would eventually do. Um, you know, some people, you know, certainly I'm sure Jim Murren said, well, that was because we did with Bellagio what Wynn couldn't do. That's well, bullshit. they just hadn't gotten their bearings, and I think the same is true at Beau Rivage. 
Um, so, and he is also a collector of of extremely talented um, um, executives. Um, and you know, and and he's he's good with people and figures a way to get into uh, markets that limit um, access. And we'll see if he gets into Florida. Um, right. He was able to get picked for Macau over. Um, over, you know, Mar- our MGM Mirage and Mandalay Resort Group and Park Place Entertainment. So, you know, I, I, I think he is, he definitely is one of the most fascinating people, probably the most fascinating person that I've covered. And, you know, one of the things, it's, it's always been a point of contention between me and my editors. Um, you know, the people love to read about what Steve Wynn's doing and what Steve Wynn thinks. Um, the people want it, but some people in journalism sort of resent Steve Wynn. They resent, they don't like the casino industry. He's sort of the, you know, the most prominent person in the business. So, um, it, you know, they feel like, you know, they, he just annoys people in journalism, at least a lot of the people I've worked with and for. Hmm. Um, and I just think that's ridiculous. You know, our readers, every year they vote him. You know, the RJ poll, he's always the most interesting person, the person they want more news about. And yet I've worked for people who say, oh, another interview with Steve Wynn, you know, and even if he's talking about something completely new, they're like, you know, they, they're just like, oh, I'm tired of this. It's interesting. You know, and, you know, I've just never understood that, but, you know each their own. Yeah, you know, I have, I just finished reading the biography of Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple, and the Isaacson Isaacson biography, right, and so I, you know, as I think most listeners would know, I, if there's another company or industry that I keep close tabs on, it's definitely Apple, I mean, I, um, it's something that I care a lot about and read about as much as I can, and so I've always seen a certain parallel actually between these two people. And I think um, one, and even more so after reading the book, I think one of the things that's great about Wynn is that he has great instinct. And I think that was also true of jobs that it wasn't necessarily um, always a decision that came down to numbers, though both of them have been very successful in their careers uh, on, um, you know, on a monetary front, but it's, it's really instinct. It's really understanding what people want. And really connecting with them in a way that a lot of the other people in the gaming industry don't do as well. And and so I think that's a big part of it. But there's also this charisma factor, which is huge. I mean, both Jobs also and Wynn have this great, ha- have this great charisma. They're great at connecting with people. And it, it, it makes you want to learn more. And I, I can honestly say that I wouldn't be doing any of this Vegas stuff if it wasn't for Steve Wynn. I mean, it's because – and I give the guy a hard time all the time because I think a lot of the stuff he does, especially recently, is a little crazy. But if it wasn't for seeing the buildings that he built and learning about how they were made and how they work and being impressed by – the attention to detail down to every last little tiny bit and going around the back of Bellagio and realizing that the warehouse has the same level of architectural detailing as the, the front door that the customers come come through. That is what got me interested in these things. That is why I cared about them to sort of see, see somebody that had thought about the whole thing, the whole widget in a totally complete way. Um, and that really cared about it 
th- that impressed me deeply and and so I, I agree. He's such a compelling figure, and I find it crazy that there would be, um, you know, local journalists, editors that that would say, "Hey, eh, whatever. He's not interesting. He's, you know, we, we've had enough of him." I mean, I, you know, you, you can't you can't eat uh, waffles every day for breakfast, right? But at the same time, it it he's an amazing and interesting figure, and that and. And uh, you know his impact on the industry can't be can't be overstated. I mean, it, it's it's been so he's been such an incredible leader um, over all the decades he's been involved. It's just it's pretty amazing. I, you know, I mean, yeah, yes, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, one just one little example of um, when you know those of us who live in Las Vegas, we regularly get visitors from out of town. Um, it's like if you have relatives with kids and you live in Orlando, you're <laughs> going to probably get more visits right. than, you know, than if you lived in Detroit. Um, here, um, you know, we get a lot, you get a lot of visitors and, you know, I don't, I mean, I take people to see Win and Encore and there's, you know, a lot of other cool things to see at a bunch of the different resorts, but, you know, Bellagio and the, you know, the lake and the fountains and, you know, the Portica Share overlook of the lake and the conservatory and the, you know, the, the, the sculpture in the lobby and just the, you know, the look of the property. Um, you know, there's so much about that place. You know, I, I can't, I don't think there's ever been somebody who came to town that if they wanted to go visit something on the strip that I didn't take them to Bellagio. Um, and, you know, I mean, I love I love a lot of properties in town. You know, for a variety of reasons. But uh, you know, some of the places that I like the best, and even coming going back to when I first came to town, I loved the Golden Nugget. The Golden Nugget was awesome. It was so much smaller than you know some of the places on the strip, but so cool. It was just you know, it was all dark browns and gold and brass and you know, sort of, you know, you know, modern bordello, um, <laughs> right? Ultra, ultra luxurious, and a great, a great place to stay with incredible gambling energy, great food, good music. Um, you know, it was just, it was just a really cool place to go. And then every time he's built a place since then in town, with the possible exception of Treasure Island, he has always you know, sort of one-upped himself. I mean, and it's, you know, I mean, obviously the Mirage spent a decade at the, at the top. The Bellagio spent a little more than half a decade. And I think, you know, Win and Encore are the, uh, you know, unvanquished champions since then. So, you know, it's a, you know, it, it's definitely a, uh, um, and, and, and I think I understand how you feel in terms of what he's created for the city. I think there's a lot. I mean, that's one great thing about this business. There's more than one way to skin a cat. There are a lot, as great as he is, and he is great, there are so many compelling personalities and businesses that have, that have worked, that have failed, um, that, um, have, you know, overcome adversity, um, you know, all different kinds of of cats has done have done well, and so even if it weren't for if it weren't for Win, I would still be fascinated by the sure. business. It wouldn't be the same, 
but you know whether it's you know sort of the the family run company of Boyd Gaming or the incredibly competitive aggressively competitive competitive and you know except for a uh, a leverage glitch you know station casinos right. are like you know the and, and and I'm sure the competitors think of them as the evil geniuses. I would say casinos, I, like mercenary, but I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean like they are just no, so aggressive no. and smart. And I mean, you know, I, I may not always subscribe to their way of thinking, but very impressed with the way that they've built their business. A- absolutely. I mean, I remember going to a meeting in their boardroom with the uh, the Fertitta brothers and uh, Glenn Christensen and. I'm not sure if Scott Nielsen was there, but, you know, sort of looking at their map. And it was very much, you know, they have this map of the valley and sort of population. This is like in 2000 or 2001 and sort of their sites and then other available casino sites. And it was it was really like, you know, sort of advanced war gaming. Right. You know, they had they had a strategy where there were very limited possibilities for for competitors to you know try and build anything as big or as as all-encompassing as they were doing now you know boyd made a shrewd move by buying the number two competitors competitor coast casinos and sort of solidified themselves you know in that strong number two competitor position but um you know, I that business, the locals casino business. I love the strip, but there's something about the locals business that it's even more competitive. It's and and you know, it's very gaming focused. Um, these people are uh, every single person, every single company that thrives in the locals business, whether it's Michael Gone and Coast, and now at the South Point, whether it's Bill Boyd. Um, and now Keith Smith, but with Bill Boyd's influence at Boyd Gaming and the station um, guys with Fertitta, the Fertitas, and Glenn Christensen, now Scott Nielsen as well, and some of their other people, they are incredibly bright executives. Um, and so, I, you know, to me, that's a very fascinating part of the business that I cover. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so to get back to our timeline – we, we 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 somehow have to get from the review journal to the Las Vegas Sun. What, what how does that well, happen? Well, I was growing increasingly disenchanted with um, my role at the review journal. I had lost my column. I felt like uh, um, my uh, nominal boss was sort of trying to uh, you know squeeze me out of my primary casino reporter position. Um, not that I wouldn't have been covering gaming. And I, by the way, I didn't mention, I, I also was the primary gaming regulatory, um, reporter. And I also covered sort of casino. I had the casino in trouble beat, which meant Binion's horseshoe, Aladdin, <laughs> castaways, which was, you know, I mean, for news purposes, that's, those are great stories. Yeah. I love that. There were a lot of those. And, and, that and time. a lot of those things took place right before I left. The RJ. So some of my best reporting, I think, was covering you know the closure of the horseshoe, closure of the castaways. Um, but I was disenchanted with with him, even more disenchanted with the business editor of the RJ, who um, you know, I, you know one of the least satisfying uh, you know boss employee relationships I've ever had. He, uh, 
I just felt like he didn't understand, um, you know, the casino business, um, just, you know, um, regularly made, you know, what I thought were horrible news judgment decisions and, uh, you know, didn't really like working for him. Um, I was, um, I, I went and talked to the business editor at the time at the sun, Steve green, who's now a, uh, senior reporter there who really does understand the business community. And he was very interested in hiring me if I was available. And, and, uh, they, and they did hire me to be a casino reporter. Um, and, uh, but I, but, and I, so I went over there in February of 2004, um, and, uh, broke a big story about, um, wind building, uh, what became Encore, um, like my, my first news story there. So that was an, an enjoyable way to stick my finger in the eye of the RJ people. Um, and then, um, you know, did some really good gaming stories. I got to write, um, I covered the, uh, gaming control board, finding the, uh, finding the Venetian for rigging that promotional contest. Right. Um, that was a story I had been covering at the RJ and got to pick it up at the sun and beat the RJ on that story too. Um, so, but I got, I got a job offer in town to run a gaming trade publication and, uh, um, it was going to pay me a lot more money, and, and the Sun's editor said, "Hey, if you want to be an editor, um, I got an editor job for you." And they made me uh, an assistant editor on the city desk, and then um, the business editor job opened up a few months later, and they slid, they uh, they gave me that. You know, I told them I was interested, and they hired me for that job, and that's a job I held from. Um, like end of like November 2004 to December 2009 when I was um, laid off from the sun. Right. So let's talk about the sun a little bit because, you know, its history is started as sort of like an upstart paper. It, it, it seems like it's had a tough time and that seems to be continuing. I mean, they had that, that massive let round of layoffs that you were a part of, but that's not been the only time that they've had the layoff staff. It doesn't seem like things are getting better for them. What, what, what are your thoughts on the sun as far as its business and its mission? Well, I, I think it's, it's mission has changed. I mean, the sun, you know, was the flagship. I mean, it was the pride of Hank Greenspun and Brian Greenspun and the Greenspun family. And I think that, um, you know, they, uh, when they did the joint operating agreement, um, it was it was probably a good deal for both sides. Um, putting the sun, you know, putting the sun in front of a lot more eyes as part of the RJ and saving a lot of money for the RJ. It also got the LasVegas.com name went to the Green Spuns, I believe, for you know the length of the GOA, JOA. Although I'm not certain about that, but uh, and. So that the deal at the time um, seemed like it was going to enable the Sun to sort of focus on really good journalism, and I think that the Sun did that um, and really emphasized quality from 2005 through um, the end of the tenure of Mike Kelly as the editor. Um, you know, they won the Pulitzer Prize right. for Public Service and, and a whole bunch of other awards. And, you know, quite frankly, they've continued to win some awards. They, they win a lot of online awards. They really, at the end of that time, in like 2007, they 
went from having one of the worst newspaper websites around to, you know, leapfrogging way past the RJs, and it still has just a, a way, way better website. Way better. Um, and, and, but I think what's happened is they've decided that, you know, the, the JLA, and I'm not, I don't really know this for a fact. I mean, I was never part of the, you know, high-ranking, you know, cabal that ran the company, but um, I think that they get a share of the JOA revenue. So that revenue has probably been, you know, not doing as well. It hasn't done as well during the recession and, you know, the continuing, uh, you know, real estate downturn and development downturn in the Valley. So revenues from the JOA have been dropping. And I think the company is increasingly reliant on any potential revenue from their publications. So since like 2009 when the, uh, or 2008 and 2009 when the, their other income producing entities, particularly the real estate development arm and right. also the gaming arm, right. um, tanked, um, all of a sudden, you know, it, it, they had to figure out, out a way to turn those, you know, sort of boutique publication things that were really about embellishing the family name and giving them influence in the community and hopefully making a little money. Um, all of a sudden now, those had to be money makers. Right. And so they took advantage of the terms of the JOA, I think. I, I think, you know, what they've decided is that the elements of their publication empire that um, they can make money on and keep it all like the website, like all their other publications that aren't the sun, those are going to be the emphasis. Emphasize the website because it's the future. And I think that the uh, head of the company, I think Brian Greenspun wants to be sort of a, you know, a internet public publication pioneer. I think he feels like that's a way for him to make his mark on the business by, uh, you know, really emphasizing that part of the business, even if it's not a moneymaker right now. Right. Um, he's really bought into this executive they brought in, Rob, Rob Curley. Curley. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I think of him as sort of a, the PowerPoint Pied Piper. Um, <laughs> who I'm, I'm, I'm not positive that, um, you know, he has figured out a way to make money. They've made some, you know, what I consider to be, um, you know, poor decisions about spending money, setting up that, uh, you know, a little internet the TV, TV thing, yeah. Set, set 702 TV, which, right. you know, I mean, I told anybody who would listen to me, I was still at the company, that, you know, it was a bad decision. But, you know, they, they, uh, they um, have made some bad decisions, but I think they have a plan, and I think it's to emphasize those those entities, particularly online, where they make money. And my problem with it is that it, it is at the detriment of the sun. I feel like the sun itself, um, a lot of the copy that it carries in print is stuff that's maybe um, already been online, like maybe even days or almost a week ago. Right. It's stuff that was originally it was written for other publications like the Weekly or Vegas Inc., which is the former in business Las Vegas. And so I just feel like there's not they're not nurturing the history of the Sun. I mean, it won if it won a Pulitzer Prize, but they've sort of emaciated the 
the the content of the Sun newspaper. People who subscribe to the RJM Sun, who open that paper up every day, they could have read the, most of the things in there a couple of days ago. Um, you know, the website, I'm sure the website does pretty well in hits. I think it's a good looking website. It does. You know, they run a lot of, of junk in there that I think the New York Times wouldn't run in their market, but it gets eyeballs. I think that they don't, you know, if they aspire to New York Times quality journalism in the sun, and I think they do, but they just don't aspire to it enough to prevent them from running a lot of schlock that the New York Times wouldn't touch when they're holding their nose with a 10-foot pole. Right. You know, I, I and so I feel like the, the sun, uh, you know, yeah, as a business strategy, it may work for Brian Greenspun and Rob Curley establishing themselves as some kind of very successful online journalism, um, you know, pioneers. Maybe it will work. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily a fan of everything they're doing, but I do. I, I will say it's the best in the market still. Um, you know, not that that's saying that much. Um, you know, and I, you know, I mean, they've done some experiments with some of their other publications that I don't think are all that great. But I, I, I sort of think I understand their strategy. I don't like it. I think that the print subscribers should still be treated with respect and get fresh copy, um, new new stories that um, are well written and researched and matter to people and try and and are important in the community. They run a lot of stuff that has, that Las Vegans already know. You know, they run stuff that back in the days when I was there or when I was at the Review Journal, a local newspaper wouldn't run because local Las Vegans don't care about it. With the internet their readers can be anywhere. So if they run a photo essay on Kim Kardashian's butt, um, <laughs> you know, Las Vegans may not look at it, but lot, but people who, you know, are linked to it through Google or one of the, you know, one of the uh, Padre websites that focuses on celebrities, you know, they're going to get a lot of hits. And so, you know, it may work for them financially, but I just think that, um, you know, um, and journalistically, it's a uh, it's a, an inferior choice. Now that makes sense. Um, so, sort of the next, well, I don't know, uh, sort of in the recent in recent years, we've seen the rise of social media, um, both as used by traditional outlets, but also as empowering individuals to communicate in ways that have they haven't before. Um, my impression is that you've really taken to social media, specifically Twitter, uh, and I'd just love to hear about, you know, sort of that thought process a little bit. I mean, you're you're out there on Twitter, um, you know, giving some commentary on how the local media in Las Vegas is performing, uh, nudging people uh, sometimes more forcefully than others in certain directions, and you know, letting them know if if they're doing a good job or a bad job. What do you What do you think about social media as sort of a new advancement, and, how, and why are you drawn to it? Well, I, I will say that um, I'm not really drawn to Facebook. Um, I think as a, I mean, it's it's by far the most popular thing, and 
you know, I participate on it in a little, you know, in a, in a sort of minor way and keep my eye on what people are doing. I'm sure I look at it a couple times a day. Um, but Twitter is sort of like, you know, it's sort of like the the relationship of poetry to like short stories. Um, if you think of a blog post as being a short story, um, you know, Twitter requires, you know, sort of, um, refined, brief, cogent thought. And, um, I think I, you know, I, I haven't mastered it yet. And, you know, I still typically require, you know, on when I want to make a complicated point, I, I, you know, often have to do a succession of bursts. I don't, you know, link to tweet deck and let people read a blog post there. Um, I do link to blogs, but I, I, I love Twitter. Um, I don't spend all day doing it, but when there's something that, you know, moves me, you know, typically when I'm reading publications and want to comment on them, I think it's valuable. I think, uh, you know, reading what other people have to say, I've learned to sort of, you know, um, use a little more discretion in the, in those that I follow. I, I, I want to follow people who have things that are really interesting that have interesting things to say. So I sort of narrowed that down yeah. um, to, I think, I, you know, right around 600. And, you know, when I, and when people are added that I think are interesting, I'll keep growing that, but I'm not going to just sort of willy nilly add people to my news, to my feed. Right. Cause I want to be, I want to be educated, but I don't want it to be like, you know, just, you know, I want to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff and not have too much chaff. I think, um, but I, I, I love, I love Twitter. Um, you know, as when I was laid off, um, I initially thought, Oh, you know, I'm just going to, you know, pursue some other full-time journalism job. Um, the economy wasn't that great. So what I've done is sort of piecemeal, um, a number of, um, you know, a couple fairly substantial, um, you know, part-time jobs. I, uh, um, do some trade publication writing. Um, do um, some. Uh, I, I do some um, news aggregating for uh, you know casino um, consulting companies, and uh, you know just putting together like lists of things here or links to stories that I think are important, and um, you know sort of categorizing them and prioritizing them, and you know um, and uh, I, I write a blog for you. Um, and I participate in, um, on Vegas gang and, you know, I, I, I mean, it's, it is sort of, you know, and, and it's, I, I feel like, you know, it, I'm getting to the point where, um, you know, financially I am not, uh, far be behind where I was at the peak of my, you know, earning power, um, at the sun, which was far, far beyond anything I thought I'd ever do in this business. Um, you know, and, and of course you always like to make more and do more. Right. Um, so I'm not, you know, ruling anything in or out in the future, but, um, I love what I'm doing. I love being able to, um, express myself. I'm, you know, I'm not totally self-employed, but I have a lot of, of freedom and, uh, it's, it's quite enjoyable. Um, I work, almost everybody I work with is really cool, whether it's, you know, especially like on, on Vegas Gang. I mean, you and Chuck and Dave—very, uh, you know, awesome people to work to work with and talk to. The people I engage with on Twitter, um, very, you know, very fun people. 
Um, even the people who participate in our sort of web community, the people, you know, whether they're on Vegas Tripping or Rate Vegas, who engage with us on on Twitter, who engage with us on, uh, you know, in comments on our podcasts, you know, they're 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 just so they're they're interesting and insight, insightful and uh you know it's very it's just very rewarding to me um and I feel very good about um some of the you know some of the things I've been able to do in the last couple of years yeah well i mean i think you know it it's clear that um you've made a huge impact in all of those avenues and it's i just it's i think it's fun to as a both a producer and consumer of all of this media, it's fun to be able to connect with the people that are writing writing these stories and that are experts in the field that are really, you know, are maybe paying more attention to it than the average person has the time or or the ability to do. And something like Twitter can facilitate that. It you know it can put you in direct connection with somebody that ordinarily you would never have the opportunity to connect with and i i'm a big fan as well i think it's fantastic and I, I and like you i don't i mean i do have a facebook account but i don't use it very often uh it's definitely not my focus i i go sometimes weeks between opening uh facebook um it's just for for whatever reason it hasn't sucked me into its gravity um so but to go beyond social media and we've we've been on for a long time so but i do have a couple other things i want to ask okay uh, and the first is to kind of go back a few years, and, and we saw some mega murders in Las Vegas. Uh, looking back now, what's your take on how they've been for Las Vegas? I mean, you talked a little bit about um, the hyper competition in the locals market, and and you know maybe we're you know, maybe these murders have meant result have meant um, less competition on the strip. Uh, what's what's your take? Have these have these been positive, negative? I mean, I personally, I love the all out, you know, Newcomb kind of really competitive, aggressive marketing that some of these companies had when they were independents, and I I kind of uh, sort of pine for that uh, for that past. But maybe that's just sort of you know the grass is always greener syndrome. I'm wondering what you think. Well, you know. And I was in that stage at the Sun when the two big mergers happened, actually the three big mergers, when uh, um, Boyd bought Coast, when Park Place bought, or, or I guess they just renamed it Caesars, um, was bought by Harris, and then uh, um, MGM bought Mandalay Resort Group. And there was a lot of hand-wringing um, by reporters at the Sun who I was not, um, in charge of at the time or working with, I was on the news side then and, and, and at the RJ too. And, you know, in, on TV and probably, uh, you know, all over town, people saying, Oh, this is bad. We're going to have two companies that have, you know, two thirds of the strip or almost two thirds of the strip. And, uh, you know, I disagreed with that then. And I think, you know, um, time has proven me, um, Maybe if not right, I think that time has proven that it has not been as much of a problem. I think that, you know, at at the time, it was hard to realize that when resorts would grow beyond, you know, a brand new, open, newly opened property in April 2005 and become Wynn and Encore, it's a company that still has development 
prospects in town, even you know, despite you know the the horrible president we have now that is limiting his ability to to uh, to build. Um, Las Vegas Sands, um, you know, opened the Palazzo. Um, you know, it's not like MGM and Caesars are short of competition. You know, you have the Cosmopolitan, you have the Palms, you have you know a big expansion at the Hard Rock. You know, there are lesser properties that have had you know, a hundred million and more, more invested in them. Um, you know, and, and I think the save you know, this kind of, um, of concentration just happens in every business. There are economies of scale to be realized in terms of, you know, investors and smart operating. It's just unavoidable unless you have a legal, a, um, you know, federal legal regime that refuses to allow, Right. Those kind of mergers. Um, I think it's been it's been pretty good from the, for for the business. I mean, I don't feel like consumers lack choice. Consumers have plenty of choice. Um, there's lots of great hotels. I mean, we have a hotel in town that is like you know an awesome food and beverage hotel that, that seemingly doesn't give a crap about gaming. Let me guess. Um, at the Cosmo. <laughs> yeah, you were right. Um, and and. You know, there are hotels that, you know, are like really, really gaming focused. There are places that price more aggressively than others. Um, you know, when times are really, really good, um, consumers lose some of their, uh, pricing power. Um, but boy, you know, for the last three years, um, you know, and you and I have both been advocates of consumers stepping up. If they can afford it, that they should move up in quality, try and enjoy um, the kind of luxury that maybe uh, a couple of years before they couldn't afford. I think consumers have had a great few years in Las Vegas. Um, now, if times dramatically improve, and yet credit remains tight, um, and that's hard to imagine those two things in tandem, because if times do get better, there will be more things opening, there will be more properties, there will be more competition. Um, and and there's also been competition in other markets. So I don't think um, those mergers have been bad for Las Vegas. I think they've been good good for the companies. Now, now the business decision of taking on debt to acquire them and, and some of the other building decisions, whether it was um, City Center or Cosmopolitan or, um, or uh, um, Echelon, those decisions to borrow and build, although maybe not build all the way, <laughs> without question, you know, those can be criticized. Um, obviously, the accumulation of incredible debt can be can be criticized. I was not one of the ones criticizing it back in 2005, 6, and 7. Um, so I feel hypocritical to, you know, be a uh, Monday, Monday morning quarterback and say that these people were mistaken. I mean, the trend lines were fairly long-standing in business terms. Um, you know, some people made some good decisions. You know, Steve Wynn and Bill Boyd said, we're not going to put condos up. Um, other companies, you know, Michael Gahn, um, you know, got out of Boyd Gaming when he was, you know, Echelon looked uh, a little risky. Right. Um, and, uh, and he got out of there and, and got full ownership with no debt of South Point. Um, even though he had to give up a few of his other babies, he ended up as a, you know, wholly owning a casino and not having to worry about servicing his creditors. 
So, you know, uh, the, obviously the recession affected how everything happened, but in terms of um, the uh, in terms of the mergers themselves and how they affected the way businesses run, you know, I know on on the blogs people like to criticize some of the the MGM uh, you know sort of design um, you know uniformity. Um, you know, I think that's probably a little overblown. I think people try and always, you know, force everything into that, you know, looking at it through that cookie cutter. I think that it's not as simple as that. There is some of that and that's probably, you know, unfortunate, but they also, I mean, I don't think you can put Aria into that, that cookie cutter or Mandarin Oriental and certainly the, the designs of those buildings. Um, you know, I said I don't necessarily like the way they they organize the footprint at City Center, but you know, I still think it's an incredible incredible property with good upside. So, I I was not a critic of the mergers, and I I just think they're unavoidable. If you know American business, it's what happens, um, and uh, it's unavoidable. Yeah. Well, I think it it is pretty amazing how things have gone. Um, you know how how uh, that industry did consolidate, and um, I, I you know I agree it 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 it, uh, it it is sort of the sign of a maturing industry, and and it, it is sort of the natural thing. I I I guess I'm always sort of looking on on the grass is greener side and thinking, well, you know, what if these guys hadn't merged, and what if what if there was fiercer competition? But I think um, you're probably right. It, uh, it made good business sense, and you know what else can you do? Um, well, I, I mean, we should also say that MGM and Harris made decisions that sort of box them in to a sort of weird market position. MGM, you know, not just doubled down, but like quadrupled down on the Las Vegas Strip. And also by acquiring companies, you know, they did get Mirage Resorts, which had at that time the best property in town and one of the other best ones, Mirage, as well as Treasure Island, the Golden Nuggets. Um, but, and then with Mandalay Resort Group, got a couple decent properties and a couple lesser properties along with a few places around the country. Um, but it's sort of, you know, the MGM Grand Collection before, um, especially, you know, when it was MGM Grand and New York, New York and Prim and Detroit, you know, uh, that was one kind of company. Then they acquire sort of the upscale assets of Mirage. That was a plus for the per- public perception of the company. But it, it got even bigger with the acquisition of Mandalay Resort. And, you know, the, it's, it's sort of a problem for a company when you, when you own so many different price. I mean, it has its advantages, owning a lot of price points and a lot of jurisdictions. MGM is concentrated in one jurisdiction in Las Vegas. But it's one thing that I used to talk with Wynn about, about sort of getting out of Mirage. Um, You know, everybody likes to say, including uh, Christina Binkley, I loved her book, but, you know, she certainly bought into the Jim Murren perspective, you know, that you know, that it was a horrible defeat for Steve Wynn and a triumph for Kirk Kerkorian. Right. And I think that Wynn realized quickly the advantage of saying, you know what, no more all things to all people. I'm going to be the best in every market. And maybe, and, and in the two best markets, 
you know, he'll obviously keep looking for additional good markets, but he's not going to go in anywhere and be the be the crappiest place right. or have the crappiest place. It's that is a brand that means something. Um, I don't think people know when they go to, you know, the you know the 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 MGM Resorts property in Elgin, Illinois, or in Mississippi. Although Beau Rivage is by far the best in that region, but you know the railroad pass, you know the Gold right. Strike, right. Excalibur, Circus Circus, Circus Circus Reno, half of the Silver Legacy. I mean, it is a um, it is a company that has a wide variety of properties, um, and so they can't really emphasize their company-wide any one thing, whereas Wynn Resorts can. And to a lesser extent, I think Sheldon Adelson can. You know, it's it's sort of very nice, high-end, um, pretty iconic in Las Vegas, very iconic in Macau, and exceptionally iconic in Singapore. Right. Um, you know, with that emphasis on, you know, mice and convention stuff. So I think that you know, these companies that box themselves into incredibly, you know, a, a ton of properties at a wide a wide variety of prices, Caesars and Harrah's, um, obviously, are, are somewhat similar at an even more downscale version of, of uh, MGM um, resorts. But, you know, Shell Madelson and Steve Wynn have the luxury of sort of having a very well-defined brand. And I think that's very valuable nowadays. So, you know, when I said I think that the what the companies did, I think it made sense for them financially, but I'm not positive it made long-term sense for whatever brand that they choose that they have. Um, you know, some conglomerates make you know soup to nuts, and some some people care more about about their brand, and you know that may be fruitful for them too. And that probably applied in your Isaacson book on jobs as well. But I just say, so I, I don't want you to think that I'm just Pollyanna and think that the mergers were great in every respect for all these operators. I think they're, in some ways, you know, sort of polluted the perception of the company or, you know, allowed competitors to take over that space at the very top or, uh, and, and it's, they sort of seeded the most valuable turf to competitors who are eventually, you know, potential, potentially going to grow to be bigger, more powerful on the financial end, as well as, um, at the high end. No, that makes sense. Um, so we've been going for a while. I have one more question. Um, and I, you know, we're looking at, uh, a Las Vegas in 2011 where, the last property to open was Cosmopolitan, which was about a year ago. Uh, we have nothing opening on the foreseeable future in terms of a major property. We've got some smaller projects like Link. Um, we have uh, projects like Fontainebleau, which are indefinitely stalled, and you know there's been rumors of them maybe taking that down. Echelon, you know, who knows what's going to happen there? Uh, there's actually some talk about expansion downtown with the folks that are buying Fitzgeralds and expanding. Um, there are other property uh, at um, at the other end Golden of Gate. Uh, Golden Gate, the other end of Fremont Street. Uh, Plaza did a renovation. So my question is this: Where is Las Vegas going in the next few years? What 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 are we going to see happen? And you know, you could feel free to 
kind of spin a yarn, what 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 are you what are you what are you going to guess is going to be out there? Well, I think what you'll see, um, you know, downtown is a very is a is a cool place where, you know, an operator can get in with sort of a short bankroll and become a casino owner and. You know, um, if you really want to do well and you have, uh, you know, nine figure amount of money, even low, very low nine figures, a hundred million bucks, you can do big things downtown. Even upper eight figures, you can do pretty big down, pretty, pretty big things downtown. Um, so I think you'll see more of, more of that, um, downtown. I think the locals casino business will be a competitive slugfest. Um, with, uh, you know, that's also a market where the consolidation has not ruled out competition. You, you know, you have Penn and the Palms and, you know, Arizona Charlies and, um, the Cannery Casino, uh, folks. So there are other, you know, South Point, Silverton, there are other competitors, um, besides the, uh, um, the, the Boyds and the Station. Um, so I think that will be, um, a competitive, uh, you know, just a very, very competitive market, particularly until the uh, the city's economy rebounds much better than it has. Um, in terms of the strip, um, you know, if the if and there's a you know, obviously there, it's contingent on a number of things, a number of things. But if the American economy um, stays on it, even if it's a very slow rebound, like it has been. Um, you know, with very slow, um, G, you know, GDP growth, 1% or 2%, um, I think you'll see a continuing slow rebound on the strip. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, I don't disagree with people who say, oh, you're not going to see another couple billion dollar resort. You know, obviously one's not going to open in the next three years because the turnaround time requires more than that. So, you know, people aren't exactly saying anything, you know, with, um, you know, great insight when people say you're not going to see a brand new casino on the strip for you know three or four years some of the people who say you won't see one for 10 years they could be right there have been long gaps between the mgm the first mgm grand opening and the mirage opening you know that was one such you know more than a decade gap but um it's pretty rare so i you know i would be surprised if it's 10 years before a new resort opens. My guess is that if the economy keeps doing well, um, somebody, and it wouldn't surprise me if it's uh, the guy in the big brown buildings, um, you know, can't resist um, doing something else. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, with somebody else's cash or his own cash on his own property or someone else's property. Um, you know, if somebody else wants to come in and, Use you know use some of MGM Resorts land, that also wouldn't surprise me. You can see some sales of uh, you know sort of marginal properties that aren't central to um, their companies. I'm thinking of the Rio, and um, there also are some you know very logical real estate plays sitting around. So for somebody who wants to you know play in the sandbox and buy the Tropicana or buy um, you know, one of MGM Resorts open sites or buy the the Echelon site or buy the Sahara or buy the Fontainebleau. Um, there are opportunities there. I, I figure that we'll see something within, you know, four to seven years and that someone will make a decision, therefore, to, 
you know, do something new within the next three years, you know, sort of allowing for the typical turnaround time of design, you know, design, money raising and construction. Um, you know, and you'll probably, you know, you're, you're almost certain to hear people announcing plans. People love to run things up the flagpole here and see if anyone salutes. Right. Um, it's almost one of our city's big specialties, you know, these announcements. I think Michael Flatley was going to have a casino. Uh, right. Charlie Palmer was right. going to have a casino. You know, I mean, I always make fun of the Moon Casino. There's, There's been dozens of them, and, you know, it's, it doesn't take too long of a rebound for some of those crackpot things to start showing up. But well, and supposedly Sam Nazarian is gonna supposedly Sam Nazarian's gonna get back in the game with a with a Sahara remodel that includes you know he, he it's a revolutionary design. They they are including a beer garden. Wait, stop uh, stop know, the that, presses. I, I, I'm not saying that that won't happen. Um, you know, by doing that. It lets them get rid of a, the, the expensive culinary contract. Um, I don't know how willing he'd be to fight with the culinary over reopening with a, a much younger, um, you know, work, work, worker pool and, uh, you know, actually spending hundreds of millions to invest. And, you know, I think he spent, you know, I mean, he's already spent three, four hundred million dollars there already and undoubtedly lost money operating it. Um, I, I, I still think that's a real estate play, and just by getting those kind of, you know, that kind of a proposal through the county might, you know, um, help him sell it. Maybe, you know, maybe he found that having it open is going to make it easier to sell to somebody. It's hard to imagine, you know, though. Obviously, I mean, just that? it's hard for me to imagine why they would sell off literally everything in the building, and I'm not even, you know, not even the stuff that nobody wanted, the old crusty stuff, but. Down to like the freezers and the refrigerators and the the and all of the ranges and the blackjack tables. I mean, these are things that they would have to repurchase if they wanted to reopen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree. Now, then again, uh, it may be that the guts of the casino, even if the you know, even if some elements weren't that old, um, you know, there may be some benefit to you know, sort of a synthesized, you know, totally re you know new retrofitting, but maybe not. I mean, you know, of course my initial response to that was, yeah, well, you know, a plan or getting a plan approved is a lot different than having the cash lined up to build. But, you know, then again, it's not Sam Nazarian undoubtedly had to cede some significant amount of his ownership to his creditors to get them, you know, not to, you know, foreclose on the property on, on his loan. Um, and he bought at a price, you know, I, he bought, you know, just, just long enough so that he didn't pay through the nose for the property like the plaza people did buying Phil Ruffin's New right. Frontier. So, you know, and, and it's a decent location, even though people like to point out its proximity to the stratosphere downtown. It's right on a, it's right on a, on an important corner with an I-15 freeway exit, um, I don't think it's such a bad location, um, but I still I still think it's a real estate play. Um, so don't I doubt that Sam Nazarian is. You know I think he's a nightclub operator who um, his eyes were were a little bit more a little bigger than his stomach and uh, wasn't quite ready to digest the idea of being a casino operator. I think uh, we're going to let that be the last word for today, um, Jeff. 
thank you so much for being here and doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Um, if people want to find out more, read more from you, where can they go? Well, they can go to uh, your Rate Vegas blog called Two Way Hard Three. Um, I write a regular column there called Simpson on Vegas. They can also uh, engage me through uh, email at, um, or in the comment section on the blog. Um, they can also uh, email me SimpsonLasVegas at Yahoo dot com or through Twitter. I'm at Simpson Las Vegas, and uh, you know I really enjoy uh, um, you know feedback and I- interacting with folks who are uh, who love the city like like we do so um you know thanks again hunter and you've really given me uh an opportunity to keep my voice out there um i love las vegas love uh love your blog and love the vegas gang podcast so uh thanks again for all the opportunities you've given me as well oh well you're far too kind uh the podcast is a ton of fun i'm glad we all get to do it and the community that kind of has sprung around that and all of the related internet stuff is amazing and constantly humbling. So, uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful that, uh, we get to participate in all that stuff. Um, thanks, yeah, likewise. And for people that are looking for me, you can find me at ratevegas.com. Jeff, thanks again. Have a, uh, have a great rest of the week. Thanks, Hunter. 